doing this for so long that it's easy for us to just forget that you have the power to take this away uh, if and when, whenever you want to. Uh, Lord, we don't know if or when that will happen, uh, but we know that you can. And so we still, uh, four, five months into this thing, we still cry out to you for mercy. We cry out to you for relief, uh, knowing that you can provide those things. And so, Lord, uh, as we worship you this morning, as we start a new sermon series, uh, I pray that our praise would be honoring to you, uh, that you would challenge us and encourage us and comfort us with your word. Uh, And Lord, I pray that your word and your spirit uh, would really be the driving force behind what we say and what we do here this morning. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. But we'll start by reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, why does Paul feel the need to introduce himself in these opening verses? Timothy already knows Paul extremely well, maybe more than anybody else in the New Testament. To see the closeness of their relationship, just look again at how Paul describes Timothy, his true child in the faith. Paul is like the Christian father that Timothy never had, and Timothy is like the Christian son that Paul never had. They are very, very close. So Timothy knows all about Paul. He knows the story of Paul's conversion, how the former up and coming Pharisee, staunch rejecter of Jesus and fierce persecutor of Christians was miraculously called by the risen Christ himself to serve him. Timothy knows all of this. So again, if Timothy already knows Paul so well, then what's with the formal sounding introduction? Well, first, Paul isn't just writing to Timothy. He's writing through Timothy. Paul has a much bigger audience in mind. Paul fully expects that his words to Timothy will be shared with the other believers in Ephesus, many of whom don't know Paul as well as Timothy does. So Paul introduces himself. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. He introduces himself for the sake of those who may not know as much about him as Timothy does. And second, Paul introduces himself like this to establish his credibility, or better yet, his authority as an apostle. Paul is not just some anonymous, random critic writing a letter. He's not just a troll in the internet comments section. Paul has been uniquely called by Jesus himself to serve as an apostle. And that ought to carry some weight, ought to carry some credibility, some authority with the believers in Ephesus. However, as we read on, we see that some of those believers have begun to question Paul's authority. They've come to doubt Paul's credibility. And as a result, they have found themselves going down some dangerous spiritual 
and theological roads. Picking up in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So the first problem that Paul addresses in this letter is false teaching. That's the reason Paul sent Timothy there in the first place. You can almost picture Timothy as an outside consultant sent in to clean up the mess that the Christians in Ephesus have made for themselves. Timothy is a kind of Gordon Ramsay, though presumably with less cussing and less throwing food. Timothy's not there to fix a failing restaurant. He's there to salvage a floundering church that's fallen into false teaching. Now, Paul had specifically warned the church in Ephesus about this temptation years earlier. We see that warning in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. After these tearful words from Paul and the Ephesian elders, because Paul is convinced that they'll never see him again. Paul says this in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That ominous prophecy from years earlier Especially the part about false teachers arising from among their own selves. That warning has come true by the time that Paul writes first Timothy. But what exactly are they teaching that's so dangerous, so harmful? Well, to be honest, it's kind of hard to put a finger on it. Debates have raged about what the real false teaching in Ephesus actually was. It's not nearly as clear-cut as some of the other false teachings in other parts of the New Testament. In verse 4, Paul does mention myths and endless genealogies. These false teachers appear to be getting into the weeds of the Old Testament, obsessing over things they shouldn't obsess over. In verse 6, he mentions vain discussion. In verse 7, he accuses them of misusing the Old Testament law. We'll talk about that more here in a minute. The theory goes that the false teachers may have also been flirting with an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a teaching that matter, as in physical existence, the stuff that we're made up of, doesn't really matter. Get it? Matter doesn't really matter. That's what the Gnostics taught. On top of that, they may have been dabbling in something called syncretism. That means they're trying to incorporate problematic aspects of pagan belief and pagan practice into their Christian faith. 
And then finally, they may have returned to something common in Ephesus that they left behind when they first believed in Jesus. They may have returned to good old-fashioned magic. The point is that the false teaching in this church appears to have been a somewhat vague, all-over-the-place, hodgepodge of bad doctrine. All mixed together into one poisonous, heretical gumbo that has led the Ephesians to a state of spiritual and theological heartburn. And, you know, come to think of it, that actually sounds pretty familiar. Earlier, I mentioned that churches today may have more in common with the church in Ephesus than we realize. I think much of the false teaching that we as Christians might be tempted to flirt with today pretty closely resembles what was happening in Ephesus. The false teaching that we're tempted to fall into might not be one clear-cut thing. It might not be one outright denial of a core Christian doctrine. What we're tempted to fall into might be very vague. It might be a hodgepodge of bad doctrine. We might be guilty of syncretism. We say that we're Christians, but we pick and choose one thing from Buddhism and then one thing from Islam and then maybe something from the New Age movement as well. And we try to mix it together while still calling ourselves Christian. And we ultimately end up not resembling Christians at all. We may fall into the same trap that the Ephesian Christians fell into. But Paul, with his letter, and Timothy, with his presence seeks to rebuke these misguided believers. Now, we'll see how exactly they do that in the weeks ahead, but at verse 5, we get an important glimpse of why they do it, why they rebuke these Christians. Paul and Timothy rebuke the Christians in Ephesus of their false teaching because they love them. I'm going to repeat that because it's really, really important. Paul and Timothy rebuke the Christians in Ephesus of their false teaching because they love them. And sometimes the most loving thing that one Christian can do for another Christian is to rebuke them. Paul and Timothy are having these difficult conversations with the Ephesian Christians out of love. They're exposing their errors out of love. Love is the reason that Timothy went there. Love is the reason that Paul wrote this letter to them. Love is their motivation. Love for God. Love for the church. And even love for the false teachers themselves. That's something that we should remember when we deal with false teaching in our day and age. To do it with a motivation of love. Sometimes we can get so aggressive. We can be so particular about every single person having every single doctrine right. And that's important. But we always do it out of love. We always do it out of compassion. We always do it with care. We finish the passage starting in verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, 
for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. One of the problems we mentioned earlier with the Ephesian Christians is that they were misusing God's law. Now, God's Old Testament law is good. Paul makes that clear here. He makes it clear in other places where he writes, like the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. The law can't save us from our sin. Only Christ, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law in a way that we can't, can save us. But that doesn't mean the Old Testament law has no value, no place in the life of a church or the life of a follower of Jesus. The law teaches us about our sin. The law teaches us about God's holiness. And when we put those two things together and realize just how far short we fall of God's holiness, it continually pushes us to Christ, the one who can bridge the gap. But the Ephesian false teachers were misusing the law in a way that was inappropriate and unhelpful for the Christians there. If anything, they appear to have been enforcing it too strictly, too rigidly, downplaying faith in Christ and who Christ is and what Christ had done. And ultimately, their error, their false teaching endangers the existence of the church and endangers their individual standing with God. And that's why Paul sent Timothy. That's why Paul wrote this letter. Again, he loves these people. He loves this church. And he does not want to see them fall into such a grave error. He's doing everything within his power to pull them back from the brink of destruction before it's too late. So Paul gives them the best medicine that he can for a case of false teaching. And that's sound doctrine. As he puts it in verse 11, teaching that accords with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, the Son of God, and all it entails. Paul gives them the gospel, the good deposit. So that gives you a bit of a start in the book of 1 Timothy. The Christians in Ephesus have fallen into false teaching. Paul sent Timothy to clean up the mess. And in hopes of supplementing Timothy's efforts, Paul has written a letter of his own. But now what does this mean for us? We're going to answer that question more thoroughly as we move ahead. But for today, a few quick thoughts on just these first 11 verses and really just one big takeaway. The big takeaway from these verses is this. Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Many of us hear the word doctrine as stiff and stuffy and stale. Doctrine isn't relevant to real life, so we say. It's impractical for normal Christians. 
its head in the clouds, inside baseball, meaningless debates for theologians and pastors to argue about since we have nothing else to do Monday through Saturday anyway. Who really cares about doctrine? But folks, doctrine really matters. In the words of theologian J. Gresham Machen, indifference about doctrine makes no heroes of the faith. Indifference about doctrine makes no heroes of the faith. Why did Paul and Timothy care so much about doctrine? And why should we care about doctrine? In verse 5, Paul mentioned a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We're often guilty of neglecting the importance of sound doctrine and focusing on those things alone. We sometimes take the approach that if someone has, in our judgment, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, then who really cares what they believe? As long as someone has a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, we overlook doctrinal question marks, even really big ones. But here's the thing. You can't separate those from sound doctrine. In fact, you can't really have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith if you don't know and believe the truth about God. You can't have a pure heart, at least not in God's eyes, apart from sound doctrine. Scripture tells us that because of our sin, none of our hearts are pure, apart from the cleansing power of Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross. It's only by believing the truth about Jesus, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, that our sinful hearts can be made pure. Likewise, you can't have a good conscience, at least not in God's eyes, apart from sound doctrine. Scripture tells us that it is only by believing the truth about Jesus that we can have eternal peace with God. That we can sleep soundly at night knowing that we have been forgiven. And we cannot have a sincere faith, at least not in God's eyes, apart from sound doctrine. With the way that we use it, we often equate the word sincere with well-meaning. As in, well, that person was way off base in what they were trying to accomplish. They had no clue what they were doing, no clue what they were talking about, but at least they were sincere. Bless their heart. But the true sense of the word sincere in this verse is real, genuine, authentic. And you can't have a real, genuine authentic faith in God if you don't actually know who God really is. That's where sound doctrine comes in. It helps us understand the truth about God. And it's only when we know who God really is that our faith in him can be sincere, real, genuine, and authentic. Now, I'm not saying that in order to be a real Christian, 
you have to understand all the complex ins and outs of every single theological debate. It's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that in order to be a Christian, we must have some basic grasp of the truth about who God is. We cannot truly worship someone we do not truly know. So if you're a believer, educate yourself in sound doctrine. Surround yourself with Christians who have more knowledge and experience with these things than you do. And this passage in this book is a good reminder for me and for those in leadership at this church, elders, pastors, that it's our responsibility to teach the flock the truth about God, to know sound doctrine and to be able to discern it from error. In the book of Hebrews, the author goes to extensive lengths to display the supremacy of Jesus. He goes on a long and winding and detailed walk through Israel's history that culminates in the death and resurrection of Christ. And after nine painstaking chapters of laying the groundwork of who Jesus is and what he's done and why he's better than anyone and anything else that ever came before him, The author says this, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, that sounds familiar, in full assurance of faith, That sounds familiar, too. And with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Ding, ding, ding. And our bodies washed with pure water. The only way that we can have pure hearts and good consciences and sincere faith is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good deposit. And if that's true, we ought to care about getting our understanding of Jesus right. Sound doctrine matters in this life because sound doctrine has ramifications for eternal life. Now, Paul opened the letter with a phrase that's easy to read over. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, if you don't know who God the Father is, if you don't know what he's done for you through Jesus Christ our Lord, If you don't know and believe sound doctrine, then how can you be confident that you really do have that grace, that mercy, and that peace? Paul and Timothy are not correcting the false teaching in Ephesus just because they care about being right. They're not doing it just for the sake of crossing I's and dotting T's. Sound doctrine is not about being able to sign some statement of faith that your church puts out. That way you can stay in good standing with the elders and serve on a team or vote in an election. We pursue sound doctrine and reject false teaching out of love for God and love for others. So may we as a church resolve to know the truth about God, to teach the truth about God, to correct errors about God, To dedicate ourselves to sound doctrine about who he is and what he's done for his glory. 
Doctrine matters now. And doctrine matters in eternity as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day again. Thank you for these words that we read in 1 Timothy. And Lord, I pray that you would instill in us, by your grace, a deep, deep, deep desire to know you well, to know you correctly. We want to worship you fully. We want to worship you with our hearts and our minds and our words and our deeds. And so, Lord, we ask that you help us know you. Help us know your word that you've given to us. Help us follow your spirit's lead as he teaches us. Lord, help us pursue sound doctrine, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Help us know the truth about you so that we can worship you better, so that we can know you more, so that we can follow you more closely. Help us avoid error. Help us correct error if and when it comes around, but doing so with humility and with love and with care. So that ultimately, we as a church, we as a family of believers, would all come to know you better and all come to worship you with a deeper, more sincere faith, with pure hearts and with good consciences. Lord, again, we love you, we praise you, we honor you. And it's because we love you that we want to know the truth about you. And so we ask for your help in knowing the truth about who you are. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.